This is episode number 180 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, it's Jesse Mundell. Welcome to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. I am so excited for you to hear this very special show, which is a compilation of some of the guest lecturers of the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy, which is my online certification course for fitness and health professionals who want to upgrade their education and skills in working with postpartum people in fitness and or pelvic health. So today we are highlighting 10 of the incredible teachers you'll get to learn from in the PFSA. You are going to hear one to two minute snippets from some of our guest experts who are pelvic health physiotherapists, sexuality educators, mental health counselors, and much, much more. Specifically in this episode, you are going to hear from Manir Houdani on diastasis recti and doming. Erica Hart, educating us on the concept of intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw, Shannon Kane on understanding birth trauma, Christy Harrison on acknowledging thin privilege, Aditi Leverage on how you might approach the first session back with a client after a pregnancy or infant loss. Anthony Lowe busting some myths around posture as it relates to pain and prolapse symptoms. And there are a few others in there who are going to absolutely delight you with their knowledge. You can hear the full length interviews with each of these guests and many, many more in the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy. For now, enjoy the show. So Kimberly Crenshaw is the founder of the term intersectionality. So if I hope I'm assuming that if you've heard this term intersectionality, but if you have not, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 1980s because she drew the connection that black women in particular is who her studies are around were not just impacted by gender oppression, or racial oppression, but also ableism, also classism. All of these different oppressions were coming to impact black women all at once, and it wasn't necessarily being talked about. It wasn't, it was that, oh, you know, black folks have a hard time in the United States because of racism, and black men have a hard time in the United States because of gender. And what Kimberly Crenshaw did is that it's actually more device. It's not as divisive. It's very unique in the sense that 
someone like a black woman is impacted not just by racism, but also by sexism, also by classism, um, also by ableism. So all of these things came down to the fact of intersectionality is that all of these oppressions can interlock, interlock and inform one person's identity. And this link is to a TED Talk done by her that explains it very well. And I highly, highly, highly encourage you to listen to that when you have, it's about 20 minutes long, when you have 20 minutes and then maybe 10 minutes after the process. Um, and why I bring you this term is because I think it's important to consider intersectionality in your workspaces, in your companies, um, when working with communities of color, especially um, in that there are many systems of oppression that we are impacted with on a daily basis that may prevent us from accessing health, that may prevent us from getting to the gym, that may prevent us from even having access to something like a doula. Um, so I th it's very important to always be thinking about intersectionality and not in a very like single-minded way, not, oh, you know, yes, I know marginalized communities experience racism, but there's a plethora of systems of oppression that impact just one person at a time. Um, and it's super important so that when you're creating or you're building your business or your business is already in place, it's, you know, how is my business divorcing systems of oppression and not further impacting marginalized communities? I think that's a very intellectual conversation question to be asking over and over and over again not a one-time question. So if you compare diastasis to something like um, an ankle sprain or a muscle injury, usually the, the more severe the injury, the more significant the symptoms as well. So, um, but it's not the same for diastasis. When you think of diastasis, Currently, our framework is we're measuring based on fingers, and we, we already just had a discussion on, well, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, maybe we should move away from that entirely. But when you think of diastasis, you think of symptoms such as maybe low back pain, um, abdominal distension, um, just core strength or weakness. Like that could be a symptom they feel weak in their core. They can't do and function uh, in a way that they used to be able to function. Um, and these symptoms are not at all correlated with how many fingers can fit in between the two rectus muscles. Not at all. Because I'm sure that you've seen, and all of the, all of the people on the course have also seen, that there are women who are pretty flat, pretty pulled in, and they may have a three-finger separation. Um, and then there might be women who are more distended that also have a three-finger separation. So if that's the case, what's the goal? Then why are we measuring the threes? The, I mean, the, the distance? Low back pain, it's, it's more probably about, I mean, it's multifactorial when it comes to low back pain, but maybe mechanically, it, it might be more about how you're managing the pressure and how well you're returning on the muscles and at the right time. Um, and so you, if you have two fingers versus five, that has nothing to do with how much pain you may or may not have when you're lifting your kid. How are you lifting your kid? That probably has more um, significance in terms of correlation. How do I bring up mental health or what do I say? 
And so I made a list from my clients' words on my own about some things you can do or say. So you can just say, are you worrying a lot? That can be a clue that something else is going on. Worrying is normal in motherhood, but like there's different levels of worrying. And if you ask that question, you might get more information. A lot of my moms struggle after baby. How are you doing? Just make it easy, simple. How are you sleeping or eating? This is about birth. Are there moments that you're stuck on from the birth that you replay or avoid thinking about? If she says yes, she needs further support. If you're worried, and this could be, say, in a group session, you say, if you're worried at all about how you're feeling, you can let me know. Anything that doesn't feel right, let me know. You can put some questions on your questionnaires, and I'm attaching some stuff that you can kind of copy and put on uh, symptoms that you can use. Are you guys triggered by social media or friends' stories of their births? I don't know if you'd say that in a group setting, but um, that's a sign that you could ask. That's really common, and birth trauma is a real thing, and you can give a bit of education around that. Make it a regular part of your conversation. I know Jesse does a really good job of that, that physical health is not separate from the mental health piece, that they're combined, that they're both important. Um, and it's a regular, I see on her Facebook, it's a regular piece of work that people are doing uh, and opening up about. It's not like this week we're talking about mental health. It's kind of always there. Like the more and more I look at health industry in general, like the harder it is for me to not see that like the majority of it is just like fitness professionals trying to keep people running from being fat, right? We don't say it, but that's essentially what it is. Like I'm going to teach you all these things so that you don't have to be fat. Like that's essentially what's at the core of all of it. And I've even, and this is not something that like I'm talking about publicly because it's something that I'm working through on my own. Um, but even my thoughts around body autonomy, I of course believe in body autonomy and that people should do whatever they want to do with their bodies. But I always question for myself, like if it ever came to the place where I'm like, no, I feel really good about my body image, but I want to lose weight. You know, like what is that rooted in? And is that true? Is there such a thing as true body autonomy when it comes to fat loss? Can we separate that from cultural conditioning? I don't actually really know the answer to that question. And so that's just something that I'm always thinking about for my own, for myself. And that like, is that even possible? And I don't, I don't know the answer yet. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up. This is something that I think about all the time too. Okay. So let's talk about that. Do you have yeah. clients that you are working with who want to lose weight, intentionally want to lose weight? And if you do, how do you work with them? I do have clients that want to do that and it's really challenging um, and it, it becomes more and more challenging the more I understand, like the more I see, right? I can and see, it becomes more and more challenging. But I think the one thing that um, I always work from with my clients for all of things is like a place of compassion, right? For ourselves. And so I think the really tricky thing about fat loss is that I think most of us can, or a lot of us, right? Can acknowledge that, um, we know like the system is just fucked and that like uh, what we want is just conditioning from ideas about beauty that's on one side of the spectrum 
But on the other side of the spectrum is that there are actual benefits in the world to living in a thinner body, right? There is social capital with looking a certain way. There are actual benefits, right? There's been tons of studies done that people in thinner bodies are more likely to get promoted. They're more likely to get opportunities, right? So I always talk to my clients from a place of, or always ask them to show themselves compassion for whatever they're feeling, because I think there is very much a pull to, even though you know it's a system, still want to participate because of perceived benefits, right? Or maybe you think you'll be able to get a partner more easily or all these things that are like, on one side, we know are fucked up, but on the other side, you're like, but I do want those things. And so for, I think all of us, compassion always has to be the answer because there's no, again, no reason to feel guilt and shame about wanting to participate in a system because of perceived benefits. Acknowledging privilege is a big part of this too, right? Like being able to say, you know, and not having it be, I think the term thin privilege really pushes a lot of buttons because people feel like, you know, I'm thin and I don't like my body or I'm thin and I still struggle. I still have problems. Right. Or, or like, I don't even identify as thin because what does that mean? In diet culture, usually it's held up as this like emaciated model type look. And that's what I used to believe too. I used to think like, oh, I'm not thin. I don't look like that, you know, but the reality is like, if you're not where if you don't wear plus sizes that's the the definition that um the anonymous writer your fat friend uses they are wonderful she's a wonderful essayist um and you know uses that as sort of the litmus test of like people who don't wear plus sizes are generally those who are considered to have thin privilege in our society and what that means is not that you never hate your body or you never think it's too big or you never try to shrink it or have disordered eating about it because like all of us do basically, no matter what our size, um, but just that you can access spaces and services and equal treatment in a way that people who do wear plus sizes and especially those in the very largest bodies cannot. That, you know, I can fit into an airplane seat without having to worry about it. I can go to any theater in the country and find a seat that's gonna fit me. I can go to pretty much any mainstream store you know, and find clothes that are going to fit me and not have to worry about it in a clothing store. So, you know, things like that, and also not being treated terribly at the doctor because of my size, being given actual evidence-based care for what ails me instead of being told to lose weight. All of those things are things I have access to because of the size of my body, because it happens to be sort of culturally perceived as quote unquote thin enough to get those rights and those, um, that access that everyone really deserves, no matter the size of their body. So the idea of acknowledging your privilege is really saying like, yeah, I know I fit into this sort of um, cultural standard that has access to these things because of my body size and that life as a person in a larger body is very different in a lot of ways. And I acknowledge that it's going to be harder for people in larger bodies to overcome their negative body image, overcome their internalized weight stigma, overcome the disordered eating that they struggle with as a result of being so stigmatized for their body size, um, overcome maybe an aversion to movement, an aversion to exercise, or a compulsion to exercise and overexercise. Um, it's going to be harder for people in larger bodies to, to heal from those things and recover for those things than it is for someone in a smaller body like me. And so I acknowledge my privilege, I acknowledge that, and also I wanna help end that stigma so that everybody in every size body gets these equal rights and this equal access to things that we all deserve that should be human rights no matter what size our bodies are. 
it's almost this hierarchy of what kind of loss is worse, what should be more painful. Mm-hmm. People who have had early, say, miscarriages in the very early weeks of pregnancy, feeling as though they shouldn't feel such hard emotions or be having such a difficult time with the experience. When, right. when I love how you say so much about letting the client or the patient dictate the experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah. always. I think that's my biggest rule of thumb is, is boss. Yeah, so important for us to hear as professionals working with people. So many of our students are really interested as health providers, as trainers, coaches, physiotherapists, how they should be in an effective way, handling the conversations with their people surrounding loss. And I know this is such a massive topic, but let's say someone maybe it's a personal training client. We have been working with them for a number of months or even a number of years. It is their first session back with us after loss. What do we say? Mm -hmm. So I think, so there's no one way, right? I mean, I think that's, (laughs) I think that's the basis of it. There's no one right way or one way of doing it and I think as professionals we will all find our own way that feels natural and authentic to ourselves however I think when we're moving into this experience it's really important to understand two things and number one is that these people that are coming to us after loss their bodies are postpartum bodies number two they have experienced trauma so we want to be as trauma informed in the way that we approach them. So by that, I mean, if we ignore it, (laughs) um, Um, rib cage over pelvis alignment. So the first thing that I want to find out is where do they normally like to be? Because I see patients with problems that are perfect rib cage over pelvis alignment and they've got problems. And the solution for them is to get out of that strict pelvis uh, under the thorax or thorax over the pelvis position. So for me, it's not about the rib cage over the pelvis is the best thing on earth. It makes it easier because the load is distributed a little bit more evenly around the body. Um, And lots of people will start here and I often start here because it makes life easier, but changing our language to mean Okay, you you like to keep your thorax behind your pelvis. That's not a problem. Uh, so yes, if they're happy with thorax behind pelvis, and this is where they live, I say you're really good at that, and that's one of the many options that we can have. I'd like you to come up into here. How does that feel? So that's thorax over pelvis. How does it feel when your thorax is in front and your pelvis is behind? How do you feel off to the side? And it's like we're trying to draw a picture of a 3D cylinder and deforming that cylinder in as many different ways and being able to do it so that it's not like a Coke can that, that, crimp, uh, that crimps and tears and has holes in it where it folds as opposed to a beautiful rubber, flexible um, and adaptable structure like a, you know that comes back to wherever you want to hold it and can cope with whatever load you put in it there. What would you say 
in terms of those different categories of pain during sex is maybe most common for your earlier postpartum mamas? I would say the most common is um, they just need more time. So it's just healing time. Just give it more time and don't keep pushing it. So this is what happens. Imagine if um, you had a, a burn on your hand and you know, you're supposed to be taking care of it and you're supposed to be letting it heal, putting things on it to let it heal and just leaving it be. If every five minutes you kept scraping it against something, not only is it going to take longer to heal, it's going to continue to get painful and then you may even get a neural response where if you just get near something, you may kind of jump a little bit. You're almost like afraid to let it touch anything because you know it's going to hurt. So what I tell patients is it's not just a physical local area issue. It can actually become now more of a long-term issue with the relationship where you associate that person every time they get close to you, whether it's a finger, penis, whatever it is that's coming near you, they may then associate that with, um, with a pain response. So now, so it's not just the primary issue, you're now saying, come on, let's keep trying, let's keep trying, and then you end up having more of an issue where now you're worried that they may actually, you know, have developing more of a vaginismus response. So I think it's important, the first thing is just making sure you can just heal and give it enough time. So regular menstrual cycles, I think it depends on the woman's cycle. So if she's bleeding a lot, um, then you have to take that into consideration because heavy exercise during bleeding um, might contribute to worsening of the bleeding. So you have to be careful about that. I do find generally though, exercise helps women when they are able to do it when they have their period. A lot of times though, it's hard for them to do because of the bleeding and because of the energy changes. A lot of times women will also be very dehydrated during this time, especially again, if they have heavy periods or if they're doing heavy intense exercise where they're sweating a lot. So I find that exercise can be adjusted throughout the course of the cycle. So you can do you know, different types of exercise early in the cycle and different types of exercise later in the cycle. It also depends on how active the woman is. So if she's used to heavy exercise, she might be perfectly fine. But if she's not used to heavy exercise, then you might have to adjust according to that. So if you are looking at a woman's exercise routine, I would also inquire about things like her iron, her bleeding, the heaviness, the cramps, the dehydration, if she, or if she's hydrated well enough. Um, a lot of women will end up relying on stimulants like caffeine and things like that because they get tired. And so that, of course, also will deplete your um, hydration. It'll, it'll make you um, dehydrated more. So that's another thing to pay attention to as well. So I think the intensity of exercise has to be modified. Um, sometimes the type of exercise, but usually women can exercise throughout their cycle, no matter when it is, just with um, attention to the, to the actual type of exercise and the intensity of the exercise. Because how you speak to yourself is what, it, it dictates what you end up doing. So if you're speaking to yourself with a lot of um, shame-based language, which is you're stupid, you're, you're, you're desperate, you're, you're a loser, you're, you're not, all this negative stuff, that you're less likely to change because you're like, what does it matter? That's what I think about myself anyway. I am a copier. I am this. I am that. I'm not original. I don't, what I have to say doesn't matter. So you want to make sure you speak to yourself with like loving, kind language that still calls yourself out, but you're able to transition from it being like, oh, poor me, woe, woe is me to, this is normal. People do this all the time. Let's just like refocus. That's the first thing. The second thing um, for people who struggle with like paying attention to other people's shit is to, 
really sit down and write a list of all the things that make you qualified to do what it is you're doing. You do belong in this space, whatever space that is. You are worthy. There is a reason why you are needed. And why is that? Why should someone hire you? People, and people love this question because they get to defend themselves. Because it's like they know that they're worthy. They just haven't had, they just haven't spoken it out loud to themselves before. So it feels really weird, but you tell somebody, I don't know, why do you belong in this space? People get defensive and I love it because that's exactly, you should defend your right to be in this space. You belong. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 